This is 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair the, and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. On the night that Jesus was arrested and then crucified, he gave a sign to his disciples by which they would remember him. Sort of an interesting symbol to think of how would you want to be remembered. Jesus takes bread and breaks it and says, this is my body broken for you. That's part of the, the memory. Remember the suffering Jesus, the one who lays down his life. He takes a cup of wine and says, this is my blood shed for you. A rich symbol that, that every time we participate in that remembrance as a church, Maybe there's a new shade on how profound that is, but it's a, it's a sign that he says, remember my suffering, remember my sacrifice, remember my humiliation. Not how most of us want to be remembered, um, but there's something particularly powerful there. Uh, the interesting thing is if you read the gospel accounts of how his disciples were perceiving that, so the, uh, the disciples, the, the only group with him at that meal, Luke 22 says, after Jesus had given that instruction about the bread and the wine, in sort of a jarring non sequitur, it said, then a dispute among, uh, arose among them about who would be the greatest. You know, how was it that they had spent years watching him, listening to his teaching, and Jesus says, now remember my suffering. And they're thinking, who of us will be the greatest? And then John, in John 13, uh, records an incident at that meal where he says, Jesus takes off his outer garment, kneels down, and starts washing feet. Something that was an unusual thing. You normally wouldn't even ask your servant to do it. It was a bit humiliating. So understandably, when he gets to Peter, Peter says, no, no way. You're not going to do this. He's not being stubborn. He's trying to honor this great leader. But Jesus says, but Peter, unless I wash you, and then goes on to explain in a way that Peter would not have understood the, the deeper symbolism of the washing that he needs. Um, but Peter agrees to it and complies. But then when Jesus is done... He says, you guys call me teacher and Lord. You're right for doing that. Lord is a title of great honor. But I'm one among you as one who serves. And you, my followers, will imitate me. Blessed are you if you do it. You know, when you read through the Gospels and then you read Acts, you see great character development in Peter. Peter, who likely was one of those who thought that he had the spot at being the most prominent, most successful. Peter, who was the one that so wanted Jesus to remain honorable that he wouldn't let him humble himself in that way. Peter, who then sees Jesus alive from the dead, receives the Spirit, and in the book of Acts, you see as a, a new man, a transformed person. 
And so we've been looking at this letter that he's written since September, and we're going to have another couple of months in it, where Peter, who has experienced this transformation, is now encouraging us to say Jesus has done something that, you know, you look at it, you study it, and you don't grasp it unless there's a renewal, unless there's a regeneration, unless the Spirit opens your eyes and does something to you. And so the promise is, if you're interested in Christianity, draw closer because he can do that. The promise for those of us who say we're followers is you have so much learning to do, but there is new life at work in you, and that life can sustain and transform you. But then Peter talks about the nature of that life being different, so he refers to his audience in this letter as aliens and sojourners. You're now in this world as people who live radically different. This new life is wonderful, but the world is not changing with thoroughness, and therefore there are times when your better life, your new improved virtue and morality will not lead to greater success and gratitude, but may lead to suffering. So he's encouraging us to say, but you follow Jesus, who was great, and he suffered. And so you may find great and wonderful rewarding things. The Christian life is filled with joy and glory. But you may find in the context of this world that you're going to need to adapt. And so now we're in a section where over a number of weeks, uh, the same word, be subject. And so it began uh, three weeks ago, or or the third week, uh, two weeks ago, where we looked at a verse where, where Peter said, be subject to all human institutions. Now these institutions, the government, work and employment, family, all of them are good. And therefore society needs order and we need partnership and we need to use our gifts. But Peter is, is not simply saying, look how amazing the world can be. He's saying, uh, we live in a world where corruption has become part of all of these institutions. So now governments and people with power and authority abuse it. Now employers abuse it. Now spouses abuse it. And so this is not a picture of how to have an easy, fun life. It's a warning that Jesus has called you to such an amazing way to live, but you will find at times the world pushes against you. You'll be tempted to give up. So each week we've been looking at him encouraging Christians within specific situations. How do you adapt your faith? How do you take these principles of this new life? How do you take this concept of being subject, of, of submitting? And, and the principle that I, that I had said a couple of weeks ago that I see going throughout this is something along the lines of this, that when you're free, that's part of the message, when you're free and not being coerced, not being forced to be subject, because that's the nature of our world. We try to control. We try to dominate. Subjection is a, is a terrible thing often. But when you've been set free, subjection or submission can be a means of expressing love and honor. In each of the situations, the application is to honor. Interestingly, today we're talking about marriage, where modern people think of marriage in terms of romance, and so you think the application is love your spouse. But for much of society, marriage was economical. (laughs) And so here, there's an encouragement to be honorable in it. Now, we're going to look at the same passage over two weeks. Next week, I'm looking at verse 7, and the focus will be there. And that's when I'll talk a little bit about more of the dynamic between husbands and wives. Today, I want to talk about um, this principle of subjection, especially as it's applied specifically here, not to women in general, but to wives, not to wives in general, but um, wives in relation to their own husbands. But he seems to have in view a particularly problematic kind of scenario. So while there's much, if we were to construct a theology of marriage that we could learn from this passage, he's not saying, here's how to be a better wife and have a happier marriage. He seems to be saying, here's another context, like with the corrupt Roman government or the masters over slaves, 
And now, here's a situation where marriage should be good, but it's challenging. And so in verse 1, likewise, in the same way. So he's, he's kind of saying the same thing in these passages, but now he's saying to wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. So, so in view, uh, the, the particular situation that, it, that he seems to be applying this to is women married to men who don't obey the word. Now, what does that mean? That could, uh, the likely meaning is they've heard the invitation, they've heard the gospel presented, and they don't believe it. They've rejected it. But perhaps as we think, how could we apply it? Maybe there are situations where somebody says they're Christian, but by the, their behavior, they are not obeying the word. And so this is not an easy situation about this is wonderful. This is the kind of situation to say you're going to be tempted that when they revile you, you will want to revile back. That was the words last week. Don't, don't be pulled in. Don't give up. But remain faithful and honorable. Jesus calls you to be honorable. So what does it look like to be honorable in a situation where you may not be treated with honor? That's the theme in all of these situations. And so, yes, if we want to construct a positive view of the potential of Christian marriage, there's a lot here. But the application is, what about when it's not going well? What do you do? And so I want to pick up on on a particular theme here that I think will help us to to set the trajectory for where the sermon's going, and the theme of beauty, because in verse 4, he presents to us this concept of imperishable beauty. The word beauty there is, in our translation, is just a way of, of um, summarizing the, the themes here of adornment and whether it's outward and inward. Um, but there's the same charge in verse 6, do good. That's what we've been seeing in, in society, in your workplace, now in marriage. Continue to do good. May your conduct be honorable. Um, and I'm using the theme of beauty here uh, because, again, that's where we're going to land. But I want to talk about three things. One is corrupted, corrupted beauty. Second, hidden beauty. And then finally, imperishable beauty. That's what he presents to us, but, but let's get there. So first, corrupted beauty. You know, when you talk about beauty in a religious context, especially here, there's a sense in which there's an outward physical and there, there's an inward identity. It's easy to think that Christians have no appreciation for aesthetics, that, that beauty doesn't matter. The problem is not with beauty. The problem is with corruption. In the same way that we would say with anything, anything, your work matters, uh, your accomplishments matter, your finances matter, but all of them get corrupted and become idolatrous. And therefore, God, who made the world beautiful, wants us to rejoice in it. God made people beautiful. We should look at people and have delight because they image our creator. The problem is not beauty. The problem is the superficiality that every society winds up landing in. And that's the warning here, that in these relationships, especially now we're talking sex and gender, beauty becomes complicated. It becomes a really problematic situation when there is not honor in relationships. And so, uh, I'm not finding the the verse right in front of me, but um, the, the charge here is don't let your beauty be an outward adornment. That's the, the first lesson, that, or the first presentation. Uh, don't focus on an outward adornment. That's always going to be a temptation for anyone. Now, here he's, he's applying it to wives, but his description of the outward adornment, braided hair, gold jewelry, fine clothes, interesting that around the world, different cultures, different time periods, there's similar kinds of aesthetics, braiding hair, gold, fine clothes. 
um, a certain, certain images of beauty that women are called to. But certainly if you were to apply this today, this is not just an encouragement for women. Who else would Peter use these very words for if he were to, to encourage people to follow Jesus? Well, I think one group might be the very muscular, punch-throwing, gun-carrying rapper. So somebody like sit Snoop Dogg down with Peter and he might say, Peter, don't worry about braiding your hair, putting on gold jewelry, or looking at your clothes, but I'm calling you to a better life. Everyone is subject to the lesson here. But there's a particular temptation that comes because of the corruption in society that in the, in the dynamics of power, there will always be a temptation for, for women to, to conform to society's conception of beauty in order to have capital, in order to, uh, to have some advantage. And it's a problem for women. It's a problem for everyone. There, this week, um, there were a couple of articles about a small study uh, that coming out of a university in Toronto. So it wasn't a big study, but I think it, it hit a nerve, and so I saw it come up in a number of places. Talking about different idealized bodies and how culturally it's shifted. And the study is saying that often whatever the cultural ideal creates mental health issues for women. But the concern is uh, um, where the ideal is always something uh, beyond the average, but, but what's great and hard to, hard to achieve. The concern of the study is uh, are the contemporary images even harder to achieve and therefore causing greater problems in this one study? Uh, by a group of psychologists says, yes, that's indeed the case. And so there's a, there's a conclusion. What they're talking about is as body types have changed, uh, they're using a description of a, of a current aesthetic ideal that they call slim thick, the, the small waist and the, and the robust hips or whatever the description is. It says here, the slim thick ideal was most harmful to women's appearance, weight, and overall body satisfaction. It still may represent an ideal of beauty that women find threatening and personally unattainable. And so they're saying here, society comes up with this very idealized, hard to attain picture of beauty. And what can beauty do? Beauty can bring delight and gladness. That's, uh, beauty should stir us to be better human beings. There's something about the way we're handling beauty that's making people anxious, self-loathing. And so the warning here is Peter's saying every society is going to get this. It's not that there's a problem with beauty. It's a problem with superficiality. The problem is with objectification, and so it's a problem for women who are led to believe unless you appear a certain way, you're of no value. And Peter would say, Jesus says that's just not true. That's maybe what society is communicating, but it's false. But it becomes a problem for everyone. So, so that study talks about you know, the mental health impacts that, that younger w- can, women these days will have uh, through the images that are there, but, but it, it corrupts everyone. And so you, you think of, of what beauty can do, to bring delight, to bring goodness. And then for men who buy into these um, superficial images, then the beauty of women are something to, to consume or to possess, not to see and to delight, not to rejoice and have satisfaction, but, but it taps into a desire that says, I want a, an experience of that. That's problematic. It's dehumanizing. Or, uh, and you see the complexity of our ego and, and how image is so important. Beauty is one image, but there's various ones. The interesting thing for a lot of men, they want that image of power and respect. Beauty becomes useful to that. Beauty in a woman is not something to see and delight in, but, but actually if I can partner with a beautiful woman, <laughs> these guys will assume there's something even better about me because a woman like that wants to be with me. So beauty is not a source of delight, but it's part of the currency.
It's part of the dynamics of power. And it's corrupted. It's destroying everyone. And so Jesus is not saying there's a problem with beauty. He's saying there's a problem with sinful humanity who sees nothing beyond the surface. And therefore, we're being called to a better way. And so, so Peter's trying to apply this to a particular temptation. Don't think that your value will be in conformity to, to being a trophy for uh, your husband and his agenda. Don't be lured by that. And so th- there's a, another set of articles that I, I came across and um, recently maybe you've seen some of them. Uh, a, a famous uh, supermodel, Paulina Poroskova, now 56 years old, um, coming more public with the challenges of being an aging woman who was once the most highest paid model. And in the London Times, uh, in an article about her, uh, she says this about her experience. So, so she still is on the social scene. And she, she talks about when she goes into parties. Her friends don't believe it. She says that, that men are not interested in me. So she says this, I'm now completely invisible. I walk into a party. I try to flirt with guys, and they will just walk away from me mid-sentence to pursue someone 20 years younger. I'm very single. I'm dressed up. I've made an effort. Nothing. And it makes you think, well, what is it about the particular social situation that this very rich, very famous, still very good-looking person can show up in, and her sense is, I'm no longer at the top of the pyramid, and people don't care at all. Well, good thing New York is not like that, but wherever she lives, it's got to be really hard to walk into a superficial situation. And so actually, I, I wound up just you know, trying to read up and find some more information. In an interview in CBS, um, a quite honest, transparent, because um, you think, how does that happen that she's even concerned about that? At that point, you'd think she's got to be so self-confident with all that money and fame and all these rich friends. Um, and there's a window, I think, that in today's terms helps us to understand the dynamics of, of how we get pulled in. She said, I always like to say about myself, I'm a woman of very high ego, but zero self-esteem. So I think in contemporary language and conceptions of what's wrong with humanity, that would be a way that we conceive of, what's, of our experience, high ego, low self-esteem. She says, my parents left me when I was little. They left me because they were escaping the communist regime. But I think being left, that sort of just stuck with me forever, that I'm really not that great. And as soon as you find out how not great I am, you will also leave me. Could you imagine that? That here the person that everyone would have said, oh man, everyone is going to want to uh, connect with her and be friends with her or be married with her or whatever their desire to connect with her. And the whole time she's thinking, as soon as you see below the surface, you're going to want to go. That's the problem that Peter's addressing, that it doesn't matter how much society creates these images that you can airbrush and create and and work to perfect, it's never going to deal with the things that we really want. And we're all getting pulled in, and so the warning here is don't get pulled into this. I was reading something recently that now I don't remember, I couldn't find the source, but it was about um, having to do with the value of objects saying, if an object has a story to it, it sells for much more. So if you have, let's say, something like a decorative bowl and you want to sell it on Craigslist or on eBay, you know, somebody just looking at the photo of it may say, oh, that's nice, I'd spend $30 for it. But if there's a story, hey, this bowl was given by the mayor of New York City to FDR as, a, as kind of a gift and a way of hoping that he would send some resources to help address issues in the city. Now that bowl is no longer $30. That story makes it interesting. 
And so, the, you know, what happens is then if that person buys the bowl, they may say, well, I looked at it and I loved it. Or they may say, well, I looked at it and, and whatever I thought of it, then when I heard about the story, it made me appreciate it. And that new value, then you look at it, all of a sudden, it changes how you see. The story changes how you see. See, when society talks about beauty, there's no story, there's just image. It's Instagrammable. There it is. Do you like it or do you not? And so that's the issue with dating. There's no, uh, uh, with, uh, with using an app for it. How much of my story do they know? They're judging me just on how I look. And that's not the way it was meant to be because our story creates value. And the Christian ideal is not to say we're spiritual and not bodily. And we're virtuous and not aesthetic. Because that's sometimes what you could say is, you know, let's, let's renounce this and, and despise beauty. The point is, beauty is, is about a way of seeing, and our society sees superficially and corruptly. And so the point is, as a Christian, be spiritual and marry the least attractive person you could find. The point is, when you get to know somebody, their story changes how you see them, and sometimes there's something about them that, that they become beautiful, not simply in a, I still can't bear to look at you, but I, I think you're kind but in a way that, that true character, when you're mature, when, when you're not superficial, you start to say, I, I like looking at this person. There's, there's a beauty that then endures the aging process that Paulina can't find herself saying now that I'm in my 50s. I mean, these days, 50s is not old. <laughs> I'm there next year, so I could still boast with the people in their 40s, but as of August, I'm gonna insist 50s is not old. Um, that enduring quality is what we lack. And the lacking of it means we're caught up with chasing something that is not simply not satisfying, but is destroying us all. And Peter's saying, you're going to find yourself tempted when you find you are not with somebody honorable to think the capital here to keep this person interested in me is the outward appearance. And Peter's saying, don't fall for it. Uh, there's something better. So, uh, moving from corruption... Corrupted beauty to second hidden beauty. That's where Peter moves is from the outward external, external form in verse 3 about an adorning, adorning uh, with gold and jewelry to now in verse 4, the contrast, but what you're adorning be the hidden person of the heart. And the ideal there is for uh, becoming the kind of person in this new life where the spirit has worked and it's changing who you are that change manifests itself in how you conduct yourself in the world. And therefore, you go into the world showing an alternate reality. And one word you can use to describe that is beauty. So there's an inner beauty, a hidden beauty that people may not see, that spiritual working. But you live in such a way where there's a countercultural move to say you're going to show actually that you carry something of the glory and the honor and the beauty of God through your conduct. And so this application here, again, is particular to one situation, a wife with an unbelieving husband. But Peter is really applying teaching that's very clear that Jesus applies to everyone, including men. So if you want one source, something to read this week, Matthew 6. So Matthew 6 ends with Jesus saying, don't worry about what you'll wear. Look at the lilies of the field. Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. So don't run after that. Don't be like the Gentiles, he says, who worry about what they will wear. So here's Jesus uh, talking to people, saying, 
Those who don't know God are tempted in that way. But go back to the beginning of Matthew 6. He also has a word for religious people, and in particularly male religious leaders, where his critique is they love to be seen in the marketplaces and greeted. They love to have these long flowing robes, and they stand with trumpets blasting when they're going to give. And they pray these long prayers. And Jesus is saying, this is external. Go home, lock yourself in your room, and pray. God who sees in secret is not interested in this kind of show that we've created for ourselves. And so there are the secular versions of it, the Sports Illustrated model, but there are always these religious corrupted versions of it. And Jesus comes and says, my way is radically different. I'm here for who you are and to deal with the real you, the hidden you that you're afraid to let out. I'm gonna deal with that so then what comes out of who you become is truly beautiful. And so that's the encouragement. Don't let your adorning be external, but, but in the hidden person of the heart. And so um, Peter, encouraging wives, appeals to the holy women of old, and, and he points to Sarah in verses 5 and 6, an interesting example, because here he says, you know, I want you to be gentle. I want you to be obedient. And as modern people, you read this in the way that we've created gender stereotypes, and you think, oh boy, here it is again, that he just wants these silent, um, easy-to-dominate women. Sarah is an interesting example because any character in the Bible that you get more than just a sentence on always shows that they're flawed. So you'll get Abraham, the model of faith, but imperfect. And you'll look at Sarah, who here is a model of hope. Um, but there are a couple of moments. One, where she demands of Abraham get rid of Hagar and Sarah. You can read about that in Genesis if you're not familiar with the story. That wasn't exactly compliant. Abraham didn't know what to do until God said, listen to her. So she was clearly a strong enough person at times that her feistiness came out. But she's also an interesting person in terms of beauty because there's no description of her. But by Abraham's actions, you get the impression she was attractive because on two occasions, when he goes into Egypt, he's concerned about Pharaoh. When he goes into the sphere of Abimelech, Sarah, can you tell people that you're my sister? <laughs> why? I don't know exactly why, but it seems to be the men here are going to want you, but because you're married, they're going to kill me to free you up as a single woman. So let's not risk that. I would say in a big place like Egypt, he must have had certain confidence in the attractiveness of his wife. So it's interesting as Sarah, who was a sufficiently strong, it would seem, woman, a sufficiently beautiful woman, the example is not this, you know, this weird countercultural of that's what society likes, we're going to do the opposite. It's we're just not going to be superficial by society's norms. And so therefore, what is it that uh, these women, what made them truly beautiful and honorable, memorable? Verse 5, the holy women hoped in God. So just like Abraham did all sorts of things, but he's remembered as one who believed. He had faith. And here, um, these women are, 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 are given to us not as moral examples, but having a characteristic to say they hoped in God. They didn't hope in what society would do for them. They didn't hope in their looks. They didn't hope that a good husband would give them value. They hoped in God, and that actually made them different in the world. And so that hope is for all of us. So wives married to non-Christian husbands, this encouragement is for you. It's for all women. It's for all men. Uh, let's hope in God. And so there's a mission here, a purpose that he has, which is to say, in this particular context, you may have a husband who's not believing the word that they've heard 
a beautiful message, an attractive message, the promise of life, the declaration of the goodness and generosity of God, uh, the promise of value, of forgiveness, of grace, of a new future. Hearing it and not seeing it, not getting it. What Peter is saying is the mission of the church is to be a group of people who hope so much in that, that by our conduct, the message that they heard will be seen in the reality of changed people, that, that if, if in hearing it, they have no imagination to see what's truly beautiful, then the conduct of those who follow Jesus, uh, there will be a witness. And so certainly he's not saying, if you are submissive and obedient, your husband will love you and value you. The reality is in a corrupt world, maybe as long as you're beautiful, your husband will value you. Peter's saying that's a problem. And so the hope is that actually, if you are following Jesus, that there's something about what you demonstrate that will be another witness of how problematic <laughs> this person's superficiality is, that they wouldn't appreciate your kindness and your generosity and these other attributes. And so uh, in verses 1 to 2, that's what it says, that the, the hope is that the husband may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their respectful and pure conduct. So in verse 1, even if some do not obey the word, the hope is that your life carries a message by your conduct. So now, you know, we always need to have caveats in this because this is the right goal for everyone. What does it look like to be humble, to be kind, to continue to honor people if they're not honorable? Um, but because of how this has been misused, it's always important to say, yes, women, honor somebody if they're dishonorable. But know that if your husband is violent, honoring him and submitting doesn't mean you don't call the police. Or if your husband is demeaning, honoring him doesn't mean you suffer silently, but you, you go and talk to the Christian family. That's what honoring your husband looks like. And so the picture here, we have to understand the, the radical depth of something better that we're being called to. He's calling us to, to be the kind of people who embody the work of Jesus in us, that we, we live for him and for his honor, and that changes how we treat everyone, elected officials, employers, spouses. The encouragement is let the spiritual work God is doing in you continue so that, that it manifests itself so there was an, there's an outward uh, expression of it. That's what we're called to. I had a friend who was a dancer, and um, he was mentored by a certain choreographer, and, and it was something that years ago that I didn't, I didn't appreciate is um, because dance is so physical and visual, he said that a lot of choreographers come up with the movement first and then figure out how to sync it to the music. I wouldn't have thought of that, but he had this mentor who said the, the role of the dancer, as he envisualized it, is to make the notes of the music visible. So they're on a page that the musician is taking in and sending out with sound. He's saying, I want the people gathered to see the music come to life. And so his approach to choreography was in sync with what, what is happening, what they're hearing. I want people to see so it's even more marvelous. That's what Peter seems to be indicating. God is doing a work in you that is hidden. But allow that work to do its thorough job so that it becomes visible, that the, the greatness and beauty and glory of our God is seen by the world in your courageous going out, faithful to him. So there's a hidden work that he's doing that is meant to be visible, and that leads us to the last thing. It's also imperishable. Jesus is calling us to hold on to true life, what's enduring, 
And the funny thing is it's obvious to all of us. All of us know that, that whatever culture you're in, the conceptions of beauty typically um, don't, don't allow for aging. <laughs> Our corrupting bodies moving towards death usually means we're moving away uh, from the social ideal. The Bible sort of presents people who have this new life that are getting better and better and better as time goes on. And so in verse 4, he talks about the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So that word imperishable. So again, there are these themes about Peter that that to me are very clearly being applied. Let me just remind you of 1 Peter 1, 22 to 23, but I remind you if you were here or if you've read the book. If you're new to, to Bible reading, go back and read 1 Peter 1. But in 22 to 23, he speaks about us having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So there's the same theme, this pure heart, this inner change being since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We're told that when we hear this word, there's new life, eternal life, imperishable life. That's his application uh, in this context uh, that he's saying in verse four, there's also an imperishable beauty. Or now you have new life. There's, uh, who you are is becoming more and more excellent, even if the outward vessel which one day will be raised, is currently fading away. See, he talks to everyone about this inner reality, this spiritual reality, the pure heart, and wanting us to to walk in that. So he talks about this imperishable reality, which is to say, devote your time, not all of your time and resources and energy, to what won't last, but to create or to invest your time and energy in what will last, who you really are, who God sees you to be. So he talks about this gentle spirit, and that's something, the imperishable beauty of a gentle spirit. And again, we we read this and we think gentleness is a feminine quality. Men, strength, women, gentleness. Um, You cannot be gentle unless you're strong. He talks later in verse six about not being someone who fears. See, it's our fear that keeps us from being gentle, that makes us fighters, that makes us hiders. He's calling us to strength. He's calling us to, uh, to show that there's actually Uh, no longer that enlarged ego and low self-esteem, but that there's something of value now at work that enables you to go into a hostile world and not get pulled in. That's strength. And so, yes, there's an application to women to be considered to, to strive for gentleness. But you know what's interesting is how Jesus will help us with that. He, he talks about the weariness and burdensome nature of our world. Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. So, so whether, whether your goal is beauty or whether it's your resume or whether it's your peers or whether it's making a name for yourself, whatever it is that's driving us to say, this is what society wants and if I can meet it, I will be satisfied. Jesus says you're going to be weary and burdened. But come to me. If you are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. That's part of that word, <laughs> that beautiful word. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So a yoke was what joined two oxen together. He's saying, join your life with me. If you're out here and you're wearied and burdened, join your life upon me. I will give you rest. Why? For I am gentle. See, that's the remarkable thing. Weary and burdened people who are so caught up, afraid they're going to collapse, 
find themselves with no place to go for help. And Jesus comes and says, I see who you are. I see what the way things are. And, and yet, I'm gentle. And so if you are weary and burdened, come to me. Because if you join with me, you will find rest. Peter isn't saying women need to be gentle and men need to be something else. He's saying Jesus was gentle. So to a wife in a hard situation, follow Jesus and apply that situation just like any of these. A servant with a corrupt master, a citizen in a problematic government. The application is see who Jesus is. Join yourself with him and find that strength and rest. And when you go back into the world in whatever problematic situation you find yourself in, don't get pulled in, don't give up. But, but take the reality of what Jesus is doing in you and make it visible through your conduct and actions. Cornel West um, made a contrast between Socrates and Jesus. So, so one similarity of, of these two influential, historic influential teachers is that neither of them wrote their own teachings. For both Socrates and Jesus, their followers give us an account of who they were, what they did, what they had to say. So they have that similarity. Cornel West makes a contrast. He says, Socrates never cried. Now, I don't think he's making a statement about Socrates having no emotional life, but, but the access we have, everything his disciples wrote about him, there's never uh, his emotional vulnerability. He never cries. Why? What Cornel West is, says is Socrates loved wisdom. And so what you see in his writings is this is a man who loved wisdom, and here's how you can learn about his wisdom. But Jesus loved God and loved people. And so if you want to become wise with Jesus, you'll see that the one who loves is vulnerable to the brokenness and the corruptions of this world. The one who loves us will weep when he comes to us who are wearied and burdened because he wants to join himself with us to give us rest. And what we're told is that Jesus doesn't leave us with, with a vision of his great accomplishments and then an encouragement that you two can do it. He leaves us with a picture of the broken bread and the cup and to say, now remember how radical my love is, that I would step into this ugliness and go to the cross. You know, the cross from the perspective of the Roman Empire is we are going to make somebody terribly ugly. We're going to beat them up. We're going to nail them to a cross, and we're going to present them as so horrific that the only emotion that you could express to deal with it outside of anger is ridicule. You have to laugh. You have to let this out somehow. This person has now been made to look ridiculous. And what we're told now, we have Jesus is no longer on the cross. He's been raised. So Protestants have this empty cross, this picture now of beauty, that with eyes to see, the more the world rejected him and tried to humiliate him, uh, the more that as I grapple with my own humiliation and rejection, I see the power of the love of God, that he would do this. He would join himself to me in the worst of who I am so that being yoked to him, I can have a share in the best of who he is. And so we learn to see, you know, Rome presents this to us. Look what happens when you don't go with our program. And Peter's saying, we've now learned to see through that. That has no power over us. The people that crucified him couldn't keep him in the grave. And so in whatever hard situation you're in, stick with Jesus, follow his ways, and push back. And you'll find that your life becomes a witness to the word. And they rejected Jesus and his word. They may reject you and your witness, but they may not. The hope is that we actually could be 
a beautiful presence that Jesus calls us to be a worshiping community, to see the greatness of God so that we would not have a vision of beauty that we want to consume or use because it helps us with our corrupted desires, but one that causes us to stop and to rejoice and to feel wholeness, to say, look at the glory of our mighty God and look at the world that he has made and look at these people and his love for them. He transforms the way that we see so we don't have to be these weird people that say, you know, cover yourself up so that we're not a physically oriented religion. He says, stop trying to cover up who you really are so that we can be a glorious, a loving, and honoring people so that we would start to see the remnants of God's goodness. We would be invested in the expansion of his beauty and that we would be people who then have that rest in our witness to others. And so in verse 5, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. They're remembered as people who hoped in God. That hope changes us as we, as we look at God in his excellencies. It meets that inner need to say, whoever you are, let the Lord in, and he will do a redemptive work. He will give you new life, a life where you can put away your shame, you can put away your guilt, you can stop trying to mask who you want people to think you are with the currency of whatever social context you're in. But instead, it's that, that preciousness, verse 4, which in God's sight is very precious. Precious is a word that has to do with value. What is your value? God who sees into you valued you enough to send Jesus Christ to lay down his life. He says, now you are very precious because of what you've done, because of how people see you, because of the one who made you. (laughs) And the value of every human being is because of the one who made them, which is why Christians are not only concerned to beautify ourselves and our world, but we look at everyone, Christian or not, and say, God made this person, and who knows what God can do in this person. And so I'm not going to see them superficially, but I'm going to honor them, because that's what Jesus says, be honorable. So Peter says, be honorable, honor the people in your life, And when you're committed to being an honorable person, to seeing with the eyes of faith, uh, yes, the world is still hard. Yes, the world is still discouraging. Yes, there is still ugliness. But we start to see in a way that, that we're not overwhelmed and destroyed by it because there's the beauty of Jesus who redeems what's ugly. And so, uh, how do you present yourself to the world? Think about that. What, what, what social conformity is, uh, is, is causing a weariness? that you're just tired of trying to give an impression that you're something. Do you believe that you're precious in God's sight? The evidence for it is, is he sent Jesus into the ugliness of this world to, to share with you, to be with you. And so be yoked with him. Believe this word. And don't give up. Uh, grapple with how do I adapt to my ugly situation in a way that shows that I believe that I'm honorable, that I'm no longer that person of low self-esteem and high ego. But I let go of the ego business. And now my esteem is not a self-esteem, but God esteems me. So let me go back into the world with that strength and, uh, and present an expression of this hidden reality. If God loves me, if God has redeemed me, if I am being made new, how can the world see it as I go into conflict with a world that will push back against it? And when the church does that, when we don't get caught up trying to imitate the pictures of beauty in the world as individuals, as a religion, will find that we become a witness to that true and beautiful yet neglected and rejected word. We should be willing to persevere as neglected and rejected people uh, with the hope that in time, God will show his glory and his beauty.
through us. Let me pray for us. Our Father, every time we come, we can be reminded of how we've been caught up. We, we get exposed to our fears, our superficiality, the foolish desires that, that have caused us to go astray. And there's something so radical and profound that we still don't grasp. We're still stubborn. We're still foolish. We're still superficial. And yet you're so kind. You keep calling us back to open up your word and to look at it. And from it to, to be reminded of the hopefulness, the glory of life, the, the greatness of who you are, and our share in that. So Lord, may none of us here leave without a deeper sense of how precious we are, uh, standing on the evidence that Jesus gave himself for us. Lord, we're too stubborn to really grasp that. Open our eyes by your spirit, that that would really ease the burden of our hearts, that we would go back into this world with all of its challenges, hopeful, hoping in you, hoping in the possibility that our lives are meaningful, but also seeing wherever we go with the eyes of faith that, that your beauty remains, that you are doing a work of renewal. Encourage our hearts that we would see and rejoice, that we would be a worshiping people rather than a discouraged people, and help us to be an honorable people, uh, that we would be witnesses of that work so that as a community, uh, we show the truth of the glory and the beauty of the way of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.